DJ PK and Ben Golliver joining us, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. Ben, good morning. Hey guys, how's it going? It's going all right. We are curious what the NBA might look like upon its return in Orlando. How certain are you you know, and how certain are you you can know if you know the commissioner doesn't know? How does anybody know? Right. I think we're all curious. I mean, we've been waiting for a while. I think Michelle Roberts, the head of the Players Union, summed it up pretty well. It's like, hey, it's go time. You know, we've been waiting for two plus months. Let's get a a resolution here. It sounds like the NBA and the Board of Governors will be meeting today. I mean, discussing playoff formats, whether there is a resolution coming out of that in terms of how many teams are invited. Is there a play in tournament? Are they just going to do a typical playoff bracket? Uh, I'm not necessarily expecting hard answers on that, uh, you know, Friday, but Hopefully within a week or so, we're going to have uh, you know potentially the bracket ironed out. They've got their location. It sounds like in Orlando, uh, you know the the compound on uh, you know Disney World's campus. Uh, there's uh, you know some pros and cons to their overall approach. I think trying to have multiple stages where you're quarantining players makes a lot of sense. I think my biggest question remaining though is just the testing side. Are they going to be able to get as many tests as they need? Are the tests going to give them the results they need as quickly as they need them? Um, and then how are they going to just, you know, administer these tests? I and mean, are they going to be putting something up a guy's nose every single day? I know it's a very uncomfortable procedure, and some players were, uh, you know, a little bit upset about the, the possibility of that. So there's definitely still hurdles to go, but I think the NBA is making slow but steady progress here. Is there anything, any type of format that is gaining any sort of momentum? Well, look, I mean, I... I I think that there's a lot of public sentiment around the idea of keeping it simple, and that's the the camp that I'm in. You know, I think that you don't want to change the rules midstream here, you know, and everyone was expecting, hey, a playoff bracket with eight from the West, eight from the East, and you go straight forward. I think there's going to be a lot of support for that plan kind of no matter what. Now, the issue is that uh, that bubble group in the Western Conference with the number of teams that were – you know, quite close to making a run at the eighth seed, and they happen to have a number of high-profile players, whether it's uh, Damian Lillard in Portland uh, or Zion Williamson, who's been one of the, you know, the biggest uh, television draws all season long in New Orleans. And so to exclude those guys would, you know, of course, uh, you know, change your television ratings and, and change your ability to, uh, you know, maximize your audience. And, and clearly there's a lot of money at stake. I mean, they've potentially lost more than a billion dollars uh, because of this coronavirus shutdown, and, and obviously they're going to want to uh, you know, recoup as much of that as possible. Now, does expanding it so that you have a small play in tournament where you're allowed to, you know, you're able to get those kinds of teams in there um, and you know, add a few more games to the television broadcast? Does that wind up carrying the day? Um, I, I could see that being a compromise solution where you don't have to bring everyone, uh, but you just bring still a little select group, uh, a little bit bigger than that 16-team uh, traditional playoff bracket. But there's a lot of teams out there whose seasons were already functionally over. Either they had been eliminated from the playoffs or they just had no chance of getting back into the race. And I, I know the sentiment for those teams is generally pretty strong of just like, hey, guys, you know, we don't need to be a part of this. Uh, there's obviously a lot of health risk involved. And, and so there are some teams out there that uh, you know, pretty much just want to sit this thing out. And that is a number I would love to know. I know I'm never going to know it, but of the 30 teams, if it was just, if you want to come, come on down. If you don't, don't. How many of the 30 would show up? In how many cases would seven of the 15 players show up? What's the real enthusiasm for this, you think? 
Well, look, the players have enthusiasm because they want to get paid, right? And they've already seen their, their checks get docked a little bit here and the money withheld. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, a, a pretty strong sentiment. I think that the, the, the players union poll was something in the neighborhood of three to one in favor of playing. In terms of the team by team analysis, I, you know, I, I haven't done it that extensively, but I, there are different motivations. If you're a lottery team, I mean, you could also make the argument, hey, we want to be able to get our team together just for teams and scrimmages and practices and maybe a few, you know, like summer games, because otherwise they've, they're they going to miss out on potentially, what, nine months of, uh, of playing time because they wouldn't come back for next season until December. So there are some younger teams that, that have said, hey, look, we would just like the ability to, to work out together, uh, you know, and to get some reps if it's in a safe environment. But, uh, you know, the, the, the tr- biggest trouble here is there's just so many different factions, right? And you're hearing – some of the complaints coming out of Damian Lillard saying, hey, we better be able to have a real shot at the playoffs. Uh, Mark Cuban putting forward his proposal about how the uh, uh, the entire thing should uh, look. You've got agents coming out and saying, uh, we want to make sure we have the best facilities and, and the best hotel rooms and accommodations at Disney World. I mean, everybody's kind of jockeying for his own piece here. And that can be very, very tricky for a guy like Adam Silver, who wants to build a consensus and wants to make everybody happy. And I think my message to him would be, look, some people are going to get their feelings hurt here. It's going to be okay if you wind up snubbing a team that wants to be there or you wind up uh, you know, just leaving some people out or, or they don't quite get their way. It's okay. By the time next season rolls around, it's all going to be water under the bridge. And these are obviously extraordinary circumstances uh, you know, with the coronavirus, and you, you can't expect everybody to be happy. You wrote a piece about John Stockton in The Last Dance. You didn't think, I, if I'm uh, quoting you accurately, you didn't think he got enough due. What were you looking for? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the whole premise of The Last Dance is Michael Jordan's competitive spirit, how much he loves the game, how, you know, his will to win. I mean, that's the major theme, right? And I think that one of the big flaws from this project is um, there's a lot of great players from the 1990s who pushed Jordan's teams pretty hard none more so than Utah Jazz in 1997 uh, and 98. And if you really want to tell the story of Jordan the champion, you've got to build up those opponents too. And I thought they gave a little bit of short shrift to a guy like Charles Barkley. Um, you know, it seemed like guys like Gary Payton or Isaiah Thomas, you know, if they're really willing to engage and, and kind of uh, pound their chest a little bit on camera, they got plenty of time. But for some of the other competition, I just thought there should have been more of an acknowledgement uh, of what those guys meant to the league. And, and in Stockton's case in particular, I mean, as you guys know, he's not a full-time starter in the NBA until his mid-20s. He plays until he's 40. He squeezes every little bit of uh, a juice out of his career. He, you know, There's nothing else in his life. He's devoting it entirely to uh, you know self-improvement and making sure he's the best player he could possibly be. To me, if anybody else kind of exemplifies uh, Jordan's approach to the game and his, his commitment to basketball and his desire to win – uh, it's John Stockton, and look, those those Jazz teams gave the Bulls a run for their money in '97 and '98. Um, you know, they, they were un- unfortunately unable to get Carl Malone and and Brian Russell to do interviews for that project, which I think would have provided a little bit of better balance as well. Uh, but you did have Stockton in the interview, so I just would have liked to hear something from Jordan uh, commenting on, you know, one of the greatest players of all time and a guy who really shared his same approach to the game. Uh, and who ultimately, like, you know, delivered two really entertaining, very memorable uh, NBA, NBA final series. 
It seemed like Jordan only wanted to admit he was pushed if it went seven, and he was perfectly willing <laughs> to either ignore or – and you don't know what he said to hit the editing room floor. You know, Maybe there's a clip out there and he said something about Stockton and just didn't make the show. But uh, he was pretty dismissive of Clyde Drexler, who was an awfully good basketball player. I mean, Clyde Drexler was on the dream team. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, they barely even mentioned the 92 finals, which again went six games and had some pretty tense moments for – uh, from the Bulls' standpoint, uh, Charles Barkley, who obviously has a, a personal uh, animosity, I guess you know, Jordan does, towards Barkley at this point of their lives after being friends for years and years. I mean, I thought he was really downplayed in this documentary, especially considering he was Jordan's longtime friend, dream team teammate, golfing buddy, and everything else. So, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily the most complete picture of the other players within the documentary. I thought... You know, one guy who got uh, you know presented fairly well was Magic Johnson, not only as a competitor but also as kind of a target for Jordan in terms of earlier in his career trying to chase Magic Johnson's example or trying to live up uh, to the shadow of Larry Bird. But uh, I mean, we did see after the '98 Finals when Michael Jordan's banging on that piano and he says how scared he was when Scottie Pippen went down. Look, there was a real respect factor there. I mean, there was a you know a real concern that. Uh, the Jazz, you know, had been there before, were experienced, were going to execute, uh, you know, their offense exactly like always. We're going to be tough, hard-nosed on defense, and they were going to push the Bulls. Uh, and Jordan absolutely, uh, you know, got a look at, uh, what, you know, what could have been a really difficult Game 7 uh, without Scottie Pippen. And, uh, you know, he narrowly avoided, you know, he kind of cheated death there, right, um, by being able to pull things out late in that game. Uh, but there's no question to me there's got to be a respect factor there both ways. Uh, and I just wish we would have heard it. Now, I understand Pippen didn't like the way he was portrayed. You know, he didn't go in that one time. Jordan wasn't even on the team then. But they show him basically limping up and down the floor at the end there, as you say. Who knows what would have happened in Game 7. Uh, I thought that it was maybe accurate, but it's not me. It's, it's, it's Pippen, and those are his feelings. What did you think? Well, you guys are a partnership, right? I mean, if, if one of you made a documentary and uh, you kind of highlighted the most challenging moments of the other one's entire career, you know, the migraine game, sitting down in 94 and not showing up uh, in the playoffs, you know, when the Tony Kukoc takes that shot, if you looked at his injuries, if you looked at his holdout, um, you know, if, if you called him selfish uh, because he decided not to get the surgery during the offseason and waited until the, the 97-98 regular season, if he's demanding a trade and all this other stuff, and they really skimped over all of your good moments, I imagine you guys would have a little bit of a problem with that, too. I mean, I certainly would. I just didn't think they showed very much of Pippen's on-court impact uh, in the series at all. I mean, they, they show him guarding Magic Johnson in the 91 finals, which I'm sure you and your listeners remember that. I mean, it's just an incredible job uh, you know, guarding you know, one of the all-time greats, if not the greatest point guard ever, up and down the court and just making his life miserable. But beyond that, a lot of uh, Scotty's best moments were left out. They show him missing some free throws in the documentary. And it was one of those situations where Jordan gives him the compliment up front by saying, hey, look, this is the greatest teammate I ever played with, and I, you know, I really respect him. I never won a title without him. Then he, he goes back to, to Pippen's weaknesses time and time again uh, throughout this documentary. And if I, think, if I was Pippen... I would feel like it wasn't, uh, you know, properly balanced in terms of showing my strengths and my weaknesses. Ben Golliver joining us, national NBA writer for the Washington Post. So Jordan's got the six titles, and 
he's the GOAT for the people who never saw Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar anyway. But he's the, he's the gold standard for certainly the last 30, 40 years. And everybody's trying to get to those titles. Kawhi's got two. If he gets a third this year, because he's Kawhi and because he's won on other teams and other circumstances, does it kind of get glossed over the way I think the, the Spurs 99 title does? And I'm, I'm fine with the fact. The asterisk that Phil Jackson puts on it has faded in my mind. Is there going to be an asterisk on this? Will it fade? Does it depend on who wins it? Well, I think that, that Astra uh, for the Spurs has tended to fade because they win so many others after that fact, right? So it kind of gets lumped into their total uh, their total count. And by the way, it's kind of the same deal for the Miami Heat. I mean, they win in 2012, and there was a little bit of asterisk talk because it was a lockout short in season then. I mean, obviously they were a phenomenal team that year, but they wind up winning another one, and, and to me that asterisk talk fades. So I do think, like, uh, if it's, you know, whether it's LeBron with the Lakers or Kawhi, uh, with the Clippers, if one of those guys is to win here, um, they're probably going to face a little bit less scrutiny or less questions on that front because they've won at other previous times. I mean, the people who I would worry for would be somebody like a, a Giannis, a Tenacumpo, or you know, a team like the Boston Celtics, or just another team that you know maybe is a little bit off the radar, where if they won a title this year, uh, people would say, well, the only reason why they won uh, was because of the of the shutdown and the weird circumstances. And Look, I think that's unavoidable, and I think it's actually a strong argument for why they should stick to the traditional playoff format. I think the fewer things that you change, uh, the less there is this talk about, oh, the NBA has a gimmick bracket or anything else like that. It kind of makes you have a a feeling of normalcy uh, as much as possible during a pretty trying time. To me, it's a strong argument for just using the normal 16-team playoff group to try to head off some of that asterisk talk and, and to make sure that your champion is like truly validated and, and respected as much as possible. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to hang over the season. There's no question. I mean, we never had a year that got shut down in March. If you go all the way back to 1947, there's never been a year where a champion wasn't crowned. And so I know that's what's really motivating Adam Silver here is to get that done. What do you think about pushing the season back? Because obviously the problem is going to happen this year, but as far as making it permanent, my big problem with that is uh, if you start in December, that means your free agency is in September. And that's an issue to me because, look, right now the free agency kind of is the tail that wags the dog, right? I mean, free agency in the draft winds up getting uh, more attention sometimes, more interest than even the actual games themselves these days. I don't think you want to put your free agency period in September when you're going against the NFL college football uh, and major league baseball simultaneously right i mean most of us right now if, if kevin durant's making his free agency decision we're sitting around waiting until the fourth of july and you know we're kind of you know following that stuff hour by hour minute by minute i think the entire dynamic changes if you're competing against sec football or you're you're competing against uh, you know the game of the week on sunday or, or monday night football whatever it might be uh, I, I think the whole picture gets a lot co- more complicated there uh, so to me, I, I think that the trade-off of starting later and getting some of your games, not competing head-to-head against uh, against uh, football, uh, would be lost, you know, and kind of sabotaged by putting your free agency against football. So for that reason, I don't like it personally, uh, but I understand the the calls to do that. I think ultimately some of those calls might just be a first step towards trying to shorten the season. It's something that's talked about for years uh, in the NBA in terms of is 82 games too long. We're seeing lots and lots of injuries. It feels like star players uh, year after year. And I do wonder if you cut the schedule down a little bit, you know, if it's 65 games or whatever, 
whether you might uh, you know get a healthier product and a, and a more stable product. But I think some of those conversations are going to have to be tabled here because the NBA is going to need to be in, in revenue mode uh, no matter what here coming out of the coronavirus pandemic, whenever it takes place. They have a lot of ground to make up. This has been a massive financial blow to the league, uh, and it really set them back kind of out of nowhere. You know, we've actually discussed a 66-game schedule for years because we've been doing this show for a long time, and I just wonder if they went to that, if suddenly Kawhi would be playing 44 games. <laughs> I just think it's moving, moving <laughs> sure. the base. Instead of moving the base back, that's moving the base up at first base to get rid of the close plays. No, I, I hear you. And, I mean, they're trying their best to try to, like, you know, stamp out, quote-unquote, load management. But uh, I think we saw it in, in the Last Dance documentary, too. It's not always the smartest thing to play 82 games. Now, guys like Stockton and Jordan did it every single year, right? But Jordan's exhausting himself after the first three titles that he has to go play baseball. After that 98 title, he looked tapped out again. And I thought he was very unconvincing when he said, oh, yeah, I wanted to come back for a seventh title. It's like, well... I mean, that's my, and maybe that's how you feel right now, but I bet back then you just wanted to take a break and, and you were kind of overwhelmed with the fame and the, and the burden and the, uh, you know, the high usage rates and all that stuff on the court. You probably just wanted a little bit of a break. And so, uh, you know, to me, I, I do think there's some uh, logic or, or um, you know, reasoning behind trying to pace yourself and, and not run yourself into the ground like Jordan did. But, of course, we don't want to see a guy – play 44 games in a season intentionally. I mean, I think that's not good for the product, and certainly that doesn't help you get back uh, the, mo- the momentum from a financial standpoint that the NBA needs to regain. Ben, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Take care.